left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. You want to know the the why, right? I said, my favorite question is why? Like, why are you investing in this asset class? What is, what are the reasons why? Why are you investing in this market? Do your own due diligence. Say, okay, you know, this, this makes sense. If you don't know, if you say, well, hey, I'm not familiar with Indianapolis, you know, Chris, why we don't own an Indianapolis, but I'm using that. I think that's a, that's a really solid market. Hey, why are you buying in Indianapolis? Like, what is your core competency? You know, what's your thesis behind there? You know, what's the advantages that you bring to that market? Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. We are very excited to announce that we are hosting our first Meetup in the Left Field 2022 on August 21st in Columbus, Ohio. We have Zoomed together for two years, and it is beyond time to meet face-to-face. The primary purpose of this meeting will be to meet your fellow left fielders, as well as to meet and interact with some of our community's favorite sponsors and professionals. The tentative plan is to host a special infielder event Thursday night, October 20th, which will include appetizers, drinks, and the opportunity to connect with your Zoom friends. That will be followed by a full day of networking and meetings on Friday, October 21st. The cost to attend the event is $250. Members of the infield community will get a $100 discount and a free month of membership if they sign up before September 15th. We hope to see you soon in the left field. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Brian Burke from Praxis Capital, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited today to have Chris Larson with us. He is the founder and managing partner of Next Level Income, through which he helps investors seeking financial independence by providing education and investment opportunities. He's invested in development, private lending, distressed debt, commercial offices, and ultimately started syndicating multifamily. And as we'll discuss, he's also into self-storage, mobile home parks, and recently car washes. So there is a ton to discuss. But first, Chris, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Jim, I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. 
So the first question I always ask is, you know, what was your journey? How did you get into real estate and how did you get into syndications? And now you're a syndicator with at least four different asset classes. So can you kind of talk about your journey and how it evolved and how you got to where you are? I started uh, with my first property, single family property, when I was 21 years old in college. And by the way, I talk about this in my book. And if you're listening today, you can get a free copy at our website, nextlevelincome.com. If you click on the book link and put your address in, I'll even send you a copy or you can just download the, the uh, free ebook or audiobook there as well. Again, that's nextlevelincome.com. As I talk about in the book, I started off, I watched my parents. My, my father passed away when I was five and my mother remarried and my stepfather, and my mom, I uh, went on to buy a few single family homes. And actually, my father had a commercial office building as well. He was more of an entrepreneur. My parents were more savers. My stepfather and my mother were more savers. So I, I knew that real estate was an asset class and could provide income, but they weren't. My mother was a teaching assistant. My stepfather was a contractor. I think I made more money the first year I went and got a W-2 job than, than they made combined that year, kind of to put things in context. During the 90s, when I was in college, the stock market was just on an absolute tear. And I got interested in the stock market. I, I learned how to swing trade, how to day trade. And I mean, I was making $5,000 some months as a junior in college trading in the stock market. The flip side of that was there were a lot of sleepless nights where I was like laying there and my personality is such, it's really hard for me to turn my brain off, especially when you have something as dynamic as, as that. And I remember laying there at 3 a.m. one morning and just thinking like, I'm 20 years old. Is this really investing? Is this really like what I want to be doing? The short answer is no. So I ended up, I read 250 books on finance, investing, went to different seminars and conferences, and ultimately settled on real estate. And what I liked about real estate was that you had control. You had the ability to control the price that you purchased the real estate. You could add value. You can leverage. I bought my first property as about a $90,000 townhouse with $3,000. And my mom co-signed on the loan with me because I really didn't add a credit card, but really no credit to speak of. But that really kicked off my journey. And I bought multiple single family properties over that period of time. And then about 15 years in that space, I kind of picked my head up after going to work. I started a career in the medical device industry, Jim, because I wanted to be an investor. If you want to be an investor, the thing is you have to have capital. You either have to have capital and whether that's time, you create time capital or you have capital money to invest in a deal. And I ran out of capital very quickly. I went to work. I was like, okay, let me become accredited. Let me make some good money. And I kind of put my head down for over a decade. And when I picked it up, after both my boys were born, I realized that those single family properties weren't really producing the returns on the equity that I had in them. And that's when I switched to commercial real estate. And that was about 10 years ago at this point. There's a lot there. And the first thing, you said you read 250 books, went to all these seminars, right? And you're right out of college. I was still in college. Okay, still in college. How do you know that this is something that you want to research how to build wealth? Because when I was in college, I was a marketing and finance major and I knew I wanted to do something in finance and it was probably going to be and I was going to, and as soon as I got out of college, I got a job and I started investing in the market, but it never dawned on me to go read 250 books and go to a bunch of seminars on how to build wealth or how to create financial freedom. I just thought, Hey, everybody gets a job and makes money and then they retire someday. What was it that made you think, Hey, I'm going to dig into this. How did you know to dig deep into something to, to get you yourself on the way to financial freedom or building wealth that way? One of my favorite questions to ask people is, is like, why? 
what's the big why? I mentioned my father, but more impactful was when my best friend passed away and he died between my freshman and sophomore year of college. I was racing bikes at the time. I raced bikes for over 20 years. I won this race. It was his memorial race for the second year in a row. And it was, I had no joy whatsoever. I was like, why am I doing this? I went back to school and I thought, okay, what, like, what am I doing? I'm like riding my bike around. Is this really like what life's about? And I made a pledge at that point. I said, okay, I do not want to live with regret. I want to see the pretty girl. I want to ask her out. If my friends say, hey, Chris, like you should come on this trip. I want to be able to do that. I wanted to experience life without regret. And I also wanted to live a life, Jim, that not only honored the life that I was given, but also the life that my friend Chris didn't have anymore. And what dawned on me was that you had to have money. Like you just couldn't, if you were working at a job, that didn't work. So that's that really set the stage for me to be an investor. That was the why. Kind of another piece, and you've probably heard this multiple times, and I'm looking on your bookshelf here, but my bookshelf's hidden right here behind me. Robert Kiyosaki gave me a copy a few years ago of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That wasn't my first copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That's the one he gave me. I was in a bookstore in Charlottesville, Virginia. And as I always was, I was every week I'd go to the bookstore and I'd, well, Amazon had just started, but I would still go to Barnes and Noble or I'd go to Borders and I'd walk through and some people might say, who's Borders? Like, what is, what is that? They sold books too, like Barnes and Noble. And I'm in the finance section. I was looking and perusing and this guy's probably actually younger than us. He's probably like 40-ish. He looks at me, he goes, hey, he's like, are you looking for something to read? And I said, I'm always looking for something to read. And he grabs Rich Dad Poor Dad off the shelf and he holds it up. He goes, have you read this? I said, no, I haven't. He goes, read this book. And this was probably 1999 or 2000. You know, it was before he, he'd released like, what does he have, like 20 books now or 30 books? And I read that and it, it was like, oh, okay, this is what you have to do to really kind of have true freedom. And through multiple conversations, it helped to kind of set my mind and figure out that, okay, this is what I need to do. And then subsequently, I went on to get an MBA in portfolio management. And I learned a lot about traditional portfolio management. And what dawned on me during that process was that most of the traditional investment advising was really just sales. Part of the reason I didn't become a doctor, I thought about that, was because I don't think that traditional Western medicine really treats the patient to be optimally healthy. And I feel like the traditional investment advising landscape doesn't really teach you how to be financially independent. If you're listening today, ask yourself, how many financial advisors do you know? And how many of them are financially independent? And then why would you take advice from somebody that hasn't created the outcome that you want? I think that's one of my other favorite questions is if somebody says, hey, I do this, you say, okay, have you done that? I teach people to do this. Have you done that? If the answer is no, then you have to say, you have to ask some really tough questions of that individual, I think. That's a great way to look at it, you know, especially when you bring up the financial advisors, right? I'm a former financial advisor and and I always was investing in what I was having my clients invest in, but you know, I hadn't achieved retirement or financial freedom the, the things that they were talking about, but also financial advisors don't talk about financial freedom. They don't talk about growing your wealth so you're independent, right? Because if you're independent, then you're not relying on them. The incentives are a little can be backwards, right? Can be inverse. And that's not to say that there's not value in financial advisors. There absolutely is. But you have to find the right person and they have to be aligned with your goals and they have to be able to support what you're doing in this air quotes alternative investment arena. Because 
it's not alternative. And that's something that makes me crazy when people call it that. But that's a whole different conversation. I want to dive in a little bit into kind of your take on multifamily. You know, I've, I've heard you say it's the holy grail of real estate. I want to understand why are you so high on multifamily and what's your outlook on it? My book, the main topic is about value-add multifamily. And actually in my book, Jim, quote me on this too. I say a lot of great financial advisors out there and the average financial advisor provides more value to their clients than they charge. And humans are, are prone to human nature and they sell at bad times and they don't stick to their plan. It's the same reason that a personal trainer provides so much value. I think certainly it makes a lot of sense if you have a good financial advisor. Also in my book, I talk about, I say multifamily is the holy grail of real estate. And I talk about the first thing is demographics. And I just read an article this morning by, I don't want to butcher it, but it's from one of the big multifamily organizations out there that does research. And they said, hey, we need 4.2 million apartments by 2035 just to keep up. So that's like 250,000 units per year. Well, we just started catching up to what we needed over the past decade. There's a shortage of housing currently. When I started doing my research 10 years ago, we had this real big uptick in renters from a couple different groups. So millennials have been renting. And also the biggest group, the fastest growing group of renters is actually 55 plus. They're selling, they're, they're capturing liquidity. Maybe they're moving to where their kids live or their grandkids live. And they're like, you know what? I don't want to deal with my house anymore. I'm just going to rent. You have millennials, you have 55 plus, you have immigrants that have typically rented 70, 75% of the time. Historically, we still have great immigration in this country coming in. I know it's a, it can be a, a real political hot potato, so to speak, but the fact of the matter is that those groups rent in disproportionate numbers. What I like about value-add multifamily is that, again, I started the discussion and why I gravitated towards real estate, Jim, and that you have control and you have what I like to call forced appreciation. I'm sure a lot of people are listening and shaking their heads like you can create value unlike a house where you know you buy a house and you hope and pray that the value goes up, your neighbor's homes go up in value, or maybe they go down in value. If you buy an apartment complex or any commercial piece of real estate, really, you create an increase in net operating income through an increase in revenue, decrease in operational expenses through efficiencies. You can create additional value there. Obviously, there's a cap rate, which is going to go into the equation of value, but you have a lot more control over the value of a commercial asset than you do of a house. The underlying demographics, the underlying supply and demand, which is Econ 101, and then the ability to create that forced appreciation. And of course, the tax benefits. Not much has the same types of tax benefits as multifamily, which means if you're a high income earner, then, and this is why part of the reason I fell in love with it, I realized that, oh, I don't have to pay as much tax or any tax on the income and returns I'm making from my real estate like I was in my single family properties. That makes complete sense to me. I'm a big fan of multifamily as well. Our community is made up of, as you know, passive investors that are investing in syndications. We evaluate the sponsor first. That's the most important part in our evaluation. Try to find the right financial advisor. You got to find the right sponsor. So once we have that, then we look at the market and the deal. What are some metrics that you think are most important when evaluating a multifamily investment? And are those metrics different for a passive investor than they would be maybe for an operator like yourself? First off, the short answer, in my opinion, is no, they should be the same metrics. And I agree with you 100%. Like the most important thing 
outside of the market is the operator because it's like a marriage, right? If you're an investor and you work with an operator, you, know, you basically have to get a divorce to stop working with that operator. The property has to sell. I also joke around. It's like there was this episode of The Simpsons where they moved Springfield. They ruined Springfield, so they moved the whole town of Springfield. And I say, you can't do that in real life with your apartment complex. So if you buy in a bad market, you're kind of screwed, so to speak. And if you're with an operator that is not performing, and I've got a couple stories and they're typically bad markets or bad operators is what pulled the deals down. Other than that, I can talk about two dozen different metrics. There's some big ones. So you want population growth. If you're an investor, how do I find out what areas of the country are growing? One, you can pay attention to the news and you can see what areas are coming up. I usually put this on my website every year. There's a study by United Van Lines and they show where net in and out migration are occurring. And that's a real simple way. You can say, hey, I want to invest in the Southeast because people are moving to the Southeast. I was talking to an investor last week and he actually lives in the Southwest and he's really concerned about water supply there. He's going to move because he's concerned that they're going to run out of water. And actually, I just read today that there's a few states that they're having um, you know, significant water shortages again here. You may say, well, hey, Phoenix has a lot of great in-migration, a lot of great job growth, which is the second thing. You want jobs. So you want in-migration, you want job growth. But you may say personally, hey, these areas make sense, but I don't like this area for whatever reason. Maybe you don't like Texas for some reason or Florida and you just don't want to be there. You have to agree with it, right, as an investor. From an analytical side, population growth, job growth, but not just job growth. I like diversity of employers. So what I mean is, you know, you could have Houston, like Houston 10 years ago was dominated by, by the energy industry, specifically oil. Well, when the oil price went down 50%, Houston just got smashed in terms of rent growth and vacancy and, and all that. I like to have more diversity in employers. And I learned that the hard way by being a passive investor in Houston at the time. Didn't get great returns in that deal. Again, I also like to invest in areas as an investor, speaking as a, as a limited partner, as a passive investor, in areas and states that are business friendly. That means I want preferably lower tax rates when it comes to businesses and personal income. I want states that are actively trying to get businesses to move in. This is probably pretty obvious, but also states, cities that are landlord friendly. Because you know, if you are in a state where somebody can hang out in their apartment for a year before you can evict them and they're not paying rent, that can really affect your returns as well when the market turns down. I think those were five things that I listed there. Population growth, job growth, diversity of employers, business-friendly environment, and landlord-friendly environment. Those are the big five, in my opinion, that I would look for as a passive investor. You know, most of those are market metrics. And I, I find that interesting because when I asked the question, you said outside of the market, the sponsor is the most important. You kind of put market up there as, as very important, which, which I agree. You know, in my mind, if you have a good sponsor, they're probably picking a good market. You know, it's the chicken and the egg thing. But what I want to know is those are great metrics for a deal that you're looking at that's in a market. As a passive investor, how would you recommend people vet the sponsor and make sure that they're going with a quality sponsor? What are the things you look for? Because everyone was making money over the last 10 or 15 years, right? I own some multifamily and handled it horribly, managed it wrong and still made money. It's not going to be the same thing going forward, right? Which is why I'm hiring asset managers. What should I be asking? What questions am I asking? And what am I looking for to know that I have a quality sponsor? 
I think first off, you want to know the the why, right? I said, my favorite question is why? Like, why are you investing in this asset class? What is What are the reasons why? Why are you investing in this market? Do your own due diligence. Say, okay, this, this makes sense. If you don't know, if you say, well, hey, I'm not familiar with Indianapolis. Hey, why are you buying in Indianapolis? Like, what is your core competency? You know, what's your thesis behind there? And you know, what's the advantages that you bring to that market? That's a good question. Why are you buying a specific asset type? Do you buy class A? Do you buy class B? Do you buy class C? And why? Ask a sponsor the question to all those. Do all their answers align with what you've come up to that point? Do you have a referral to that sponsor? Do you know somebody that's worked with that sponsor before? If not, if you've come upon this sponsor organically in some way, shape, or form, ask for referrals or try to track someone down that has been an investor. When somebody says, hey, Chris, do you have anybody I can speak to? I like to pick somebody that's been investing with me since the beginning, has preferably invested in multiple deals and has maybe gone full cycle in one of our deals. So they can say, hey, I invested with Chris five years ago in this property. This is what happened. Um, I also invested recently and they kind of know the story behind that. And hopefully it's somebody that's not their best friend or something like that. So I usually try to refer people that I didn't know before they were investors. How long have they been operating in the space? Are they a newer operator? Have they bought a deal and sold a deal? Those are great questions. You really need to understand kind of the basics of underwriting as an investor as well. What do you expect rent growth to be over the, your pro forma period, say five years? You know, what has historic rent growth been and what do you expect it to be? And if it's different historically, so we may say we expect rent growth to be maybe 10% this year because the market's producing 15% rent growth. But we may say we're going to average 3% thereafter because that's what we've seen historically, even though it may be say 4 or 5%. You know, if you look at returns, don't look at returns and still, until you've answered all these questions because I can hit some keys and I can change some cells on my Excel spreadsheet and I can make the returns look however pretty that I want to make them. You have to kind of understand what, what's going on behind the screen there with your sponsor or with your operator, as far as assumptions are concerned and historical figures are concerned, and then figure that out. The other thing is what type of debt do they use? Like right now, it's not a very favorable debt market. And a lot of our properties were putting debt on with a loan to value of less than 60%. You know, somebody may say, well, hey, Chris, this operator has a better return than you, but you look in there, they may have like 80% leverage with bridge debt. Okay, that's going to be a riskier loan. That goes back to the basics where you say, well, how risky is your operational plan? And that's the last question I would ask. What could go wrong? What's gone wrong? And what could go wrong? Aside from you stealing my money, like what could go wrong? Because that's really, if you're with a bad operator, that's probably how investors are going to lose money in this space is, is they're defrauded, essentially. Like you just said, people have made a lot of money over the last 10 years. If you've not vetted somebody properly, that's not good, right? Tell me a story about a deal that didn't go well. You know, what did you learn from that? How are you protecting? What do you think the risks are in this market over the next five years? You need an operator, a sponsor that can give you the, the pluses and the minuses. And finally, just say, hey, is there anything you would ask yourself if you were me? Somebody's like, oh no, like we're great. There's no issues there. You always want somebody to say, hey, just like at the end of that commercial, right? Here are the risks. You might get a, a sniffle. You might have a sore throat. You might die. Like That's what you want. You want honesty from your sponsors. Hey, Leftfielders. This is Julian McClurkin from TribeVest. 
I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. The first annual Spartan Investor Summit is an exclusive two-day experience on California's iconic Lake Tahoe. 50 serious investors and eight amazing speakers are gathering at the Landing Resort and Spa for this intimate event focused on knowledge sharing, meaningful connections, and recession-resistant investment strategies that will help you live your best life. Featured speakers include Clint Coons, Rich Fetke, Ram LaPointe, Vicki Schiff, and Toby Mathis, along with Spartan's own Scott Lewis, Ryan Gibson, and Ben Lapidus. If you're ready to learn more about recession-resistant investment strategies while meeting like-minded leaders from around the country, click the link on our podcast page to learn more about the sessions, speakers, and adventures that await at the Spartan Investor Summit. Space is limited, so don't wait. It's a great summary there. And, and with the referrals, one interesting thing someone mentioned to me recently on the podcast a few episodes back was when they ask for referrals, they ask very specifically. They say, I want one person, a referral of someone who's been in multiple deals with you. I want a referral with someone who's been in your worst deal, the one that didn't work out to pro forma. Instead of just getting you know, your best friend, they're asking for specific types of people for the referrals and, and targeted Asking for targeted referrals, I think, is a great idea. That's awesome. Yes. Good. Great point. I was really excited when I heard that. I'm like, oh, okay, that because you don't always know somebody in your community that's invested, but if you ask for referrals in a targeted way, you can really dig into it. Inflation, the economy, interest rates, there's a lot going on. It's a very uncertain time. How has all of this that's going on in the economy affected your appetite for new deals, and how has it affected your current deals that you were maybe thinking of selling or refinancing? Two-part question, but related to the economy and, and all the, the chaos or uncertainty, I guess, that's going on. Let's take one step back. If you are investing in, in the stock market, you may say, hey, I'm going to dollar cost average. I'm going to consistently invest over, with a plan over the course of 10 or 20 years. I think an investor is wise to put together a strategy. I mean, even if you have a million dollars to invest today, don't invest it all at once. Put together a plan where you say, hey, I'm going to put this money in multiple deals over a period of time, kind of get into the market over a period of time. Because the answer is in your question, Jim, which is, okay, deals that we bought three years ago, we're selling earlier than maybe our five-year plan at a premium to what we thought we would. So you know, we're returning a significantly higher amount to investors than, than they expected. That's because 2021 was the best year in history for multifamily in basically every way, shape, or form. What does that mean today? I like to think of, and I did a podcast, I think it was my 100th episode, I talked about some of the predictions that I see over the next five years. This year, in my opinion, it's kind of like a hangover from 2021. Everything was too much. Read an article this morning, it was talking about housing prices, housing growth is slowing down. Well. It was like 18, 19% over the past year. Now it's like four and a half percent, which lo and behold, was the average the 10 years prior to 2021. That's not bad. If you say, hey, my house is going to go up four or 5% over the next year, that's not bad. Is that 20% like it did last year? 
No, but is that healthy? Is that sustainable? Probably not. If you're losing weight and racing bicycles, as a cyclist, you're always trying to cut weight to be as fast as you can. You want to lose weight and you can lose a pound a week. That's healthy. If you lose 10 pounds in a week, you probably can't keep doing that before something bad is going to happen. A business plan is not going to be sustainable if prices are going up you know, 18, 20%. Inflation definitely pushed that, right? What's happened is, and this is one of the benefits of multifamily, you're hedged on both sides. Even though rates have gone up, guess what else has gone up? Rents have gone up, right? When rates go up, it becomes more expensive to buy a home. The number one reason that we lose residents is because they move out to buy a house. If they have to take longer to save up a down payment and their payment is higher, are they more or less likely to stay a renter? That's good for the properties that we already own. The bad thing is cap rates have not really increased in line with inflation or with the debt markets. So what we found is it's really hard to make deals work right now. And you know, where investors may have expected X return, you know, maybe they're going to get 75% of what they thought they were going to get, you know, historically. You know, that makes it harder to raise capital from investors because if investors gotten spectacular returns and now they look at the returns that we were showing them that they're similar to two years ago. They're like, those aren't very good returns. Like, both are the same as they were two years ago. <laughs> I think for anyone buying deals today, you have to be conscious of that. There aren't an abundance of deals out there. You have to underwrite a lot more deals. You have to be a lot more, or at least more conservative, I think, with your loan to value because you can't pile on a bunch of debt at 6%, where it used to be 4%. You know, you're going to get a lot of your profit eaten up by the debt service, which is a concern. I think if you have a portfolio that you've built over the past few years, you're benefiting from some of that. And then the last piece of that is sometimes you have to, to expand your horizon when it comes to types of investments. And that's one of the reasons that we've expanded outside of multifamily to complement you know, some of the benefits of multifamily with some of the cash flows, the higher cash flows from other investment types that are out there. Let's talk about that. You're now in self-storage, mobile home parks, and car washes. Talk a little bit about those asset classes, why you made the decision to get into them. And then we talked briefly about this, but my most, my biggest question for a sponsor who's successful at multifamily or whatever else, and they change asset classes, I don't want to be your guinea pig. So I want to watch and see if you're as successful in mobile home parks as you were in multifamily. But then there's other syndicators who hire an expert who's already done it for 20 years. And then I'm like, okay, that's an easier transition for me. Talk about both those parts, why the new asset classes, then what you've done to gain expertise so you can be an expert in those as you are in multifamily. Again, that's another terrific question if you're listening to write down to ask an operator that's out there. And we fall into the latter category, Jim. When I first started out, it was me and one other guy, other partner, and we kind of did it all ourselves. If you read my book, what you'll see is it's all about value add investing. You can take a value add strategy. So what I mean is there's like, you could build new, right? Like that's development. You can buy a property, you can improve operations, you can improve revenue, you can improve operations, or you could buy a property and totally do a heavy reposition, right? There's all kinds of different ends. Value add is kind of like the Warren Buffett strategy of investing. It's not super sexy, but it's super repeatable, in my opinion. We take the value add strategy that we used in multifamily, we, we deploy it in self-storage and mobile home parks, as well as the car wash space as well. And then we partner with those that have 
are either experts in that space and we bring them onto the team. So I was just in Tennessee yesterday. We're buying a five mobile home park portfolio over there. And my partner's been in, he's basically all he did was mobile home parks for many, many years. He has 12 parks. He's had disposition. This isn't his first go around there. I'm going to kind of be boring here with self-storage and mobile home parks. Self-storage has a lot of the same similar metrics that multifamily does. If you think about this, if people are in transition, right, if they're moving, if they downsizing or they're trying to upsize but can't, they're going to need self-storage. A lot of the same people that are renting are using self-storage. If they're moving into and out of markets, they're going to be using self-storage when they move into those markets. Those same metrics apply. Self-storage rents tend to be a little stickier because they're lower. If you look at what performed the best in 08, 09, self-storage, I think, and don't quote me on this, but it was mid single digit returns. It was about 6%, I think was the returns in 2008 for self-storage. And they performed very well. And some would say even better than multifamily. Mobile home parks, if you look at the, the housing market, mobile home parks perform exceptionally well during downturns. The owners, I was talking to them yesterday. I said, hey, when you, they said, well, we bought these parks in 2004. I said, what happened in 08, 09? They said, nothing. Uh, like everything was fine. In 2020, they said, we noticed like absolutely no change whatsoever you know, in our business plan, our rents, collections, any of that. They literally said it was 08 and 2020 were unremarkable in their opinions. And they do flips, they do other stuff, and they're very familiar with that market. So they're just not some naive operators that are out there. I consider mobile home parks to be a very favorable portion of affordable multifamily. And I've actually replaced class C and lower class B type properties. And what I mean is those that are built 1980 or before, maybe even mid eighties or before, I've replaced those types of apartments with mobile home parks because in my opinion, as cap rates have dropped in those seventies and eighties vintage properties, the risk has gone up in those properties. And we saw that in 2020, which is part of the reason I started pivoting before that, but in mobile home parks, we did not. So I think you get better returns in mobile home parks with lower risk compared to B and C type assets and multifamily. Now, my favorite this year is car washes. The car wash space is interesting. You have a lot of different things happening right now that are very favorable to car washes. At the current run rate and current build rate, we need to build at the current rate we are. And I'm specifically talking about express tunnels where you drive up, your car gets pulled through in a few minutes, like two to five minutes, and your car's automatically washed and spit out the other side. And then you either dry it yourself or somebody dries it. You have your own vacuums and those sorts of things. If we continue to build at the current rate, it's going to take us 15 years to reach current demand. So we have 15 years. Over the past five, maybe 10 years, but five years, private equity has just now started to enter the market and they're starting to drive prices up as they build portfolios. Do you know who the major player is that has more than 5% of the market in the United States is, Jim? Well, no one does because no one owns more than 3%. And if you look internationally, the definition internationally of a major player in a market, in a specific industry, is one that owns 5% or more of the market. There is no single major player in the express car wash space. So there's an opportunity. There are players that are trying to get to that point, which means there's going to be massive consolidation as the money flows into this space. 75% of these car washes are owned by what I would call mom and pops that own less than five locations. And what does that mean? It's, you know, if you're listening and you're like, oh, I, I like buying from 
mom and pops, you know, owners that don't really know how to professionalize something because there's fat, there's meat, there's op, there's chances to operationally become more efficient and to scale. If you look at all those factors, to me, it's a very exciting time. The challenge is who runs these? Unlike multifamily, you can't just pull an operator off the shelf. So we actually had to build a team. So we brought in a consultant and we hire people from the locations that we buy, but we had to build a leadership team to run this that, that can really understand a couple things. One, how to hire talent, because unfortunately, a lot of people that run these car washes, they kind of, they pay kind of low market rates. They're not getting great talent. They don't know how to sell. They're not really selling as well as they could, selling memberships specifically. And then we have an engineer that runs our team because the two big variables are chemicals and mechanics. My biomechanical engineering degree, so I can kind of understand the inner workings of this. The issue is you could be using twice the chemicals that you need to be using to wash cars, which means you're spending twice the money. If your spray angles are off, then you're spending more money. If your conveyor belt is the wrong speed, you're spending more money. If you're spraying for 10 seconds instead of only the three seconds that you need to spray a chemical during the period that the car is going under there, you're using 70% too much. I mean, there's like on and on and on. So when you scale this across a large portfolio, then you can really make some big differences there. And the nice thing is the margins, the cash flows are substantial. And when you combine that with the potential for large exits when it comes to selling to some of these larger operators, the returns can be pretty exciting for investors. I've been in the multifamily, obviously, in self-storage and mobile home parks. And I, I just got in my first car wash deal. And it was funny, I think two or three years ago, someone mentioned car wash to me. And I, I thought, I don't really get it. That's not really a thing. And now there's a lot of people jumping into the space and you've given some great reasons as to why, but the car wash is different because it is an operating business. It is real estate because you might buy the property, but it's a business. That is a great point. Maybe 25% of the business, maybe 30% is the actual real estate. But yeah, don't be fooled. Don't say, well, hey, Chris, if the returns are so much better, I'll just put all my money in here instead of multifamily. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's like investing in a value-add stock versus a growth stock or venture capital or something like that. You have to understand that, yeah, you're not investing in real estate now, you're investing in a business. It gets a little confusing because we're in this uh, syndication world where when you say, hey, we're doing syndication, everyone's always talking real estate. And then you get ATMs kind of blur that because is that really real estate? Maybe not, but the car wash really steps outside. And that doesn't mean avoid it. That just means, like you said, open your eyes, recognize that you're in something different and ask all the questions you need to. And, and I like how you get into these new asset classes. You're either hiring your talent or you're partnering with an experienced operator, it sounds like. And for me, that eliminates the, hey, I got to pause and wait and see how you, I probably still, I'm conservative, so I probably still pause a little bit, but I, I feel a lot more comfortable with that kind of approach. Yeah. I mean, look, personally, I spent a year doing due diligence and following operators before I, I made my first investment. And I think a year is, to me, that wasn't that long of a period. The car wash space, I almost bought a car wash with my uncle about seven years ago. It wasn't a space that was totally new to me. And when it popped up on the radar, I was, as we discussed it here in the past couple of years, it was like, yeah. And I have coaching clients that own car washes and I knew the margins and I knew kind of the levers. I wasn't aware when I learned about the private equity piece and the opportunity to, to purchase these assets that weren't run really well, that's when it really got exciting to me. Because that's when you're layering the value add strategy onto 
this space that has you know these these margins and these cash flows. So yeah, if you say, hey, I'm going to keep investing in multifamily, but I'm going to layer on a car wash every now and then, that's going to boost my cash flows in my portfolio. And also, it's probably going to ebb and flow a little bit different than the multifamily space. I think to me that that's a nice strategy as you build out a portfolio. And that's the last question I'll say is always ask the operators, hey, do you put your own money in? And how do you invest? I'll always tell my investors, hey, this is what I'm invested in. My portfolio is not 75% car washes. I would never expect an investor to do the opposite of what I'm doing. And I wouldn't recommend that personally, but I don't give investment advice. The investors have to do their own due diligence. I think the thing I really like about the car washes is the value add is adjusting a nozzle, reducing chemicals, changing that, you know, just really digging in and understanding that maybe this mom and pop just put it together and they didn't have it calibrated, right? And you make three different minor changes and all of a sudden your revenue is is through the roof. So I, I really like that asset class. I'm I'm looking into it, probably get it in a, in a couple of more, but that, that's super interesting. I want to pivot real quick as we're, we're kind of on time here. I know that you're into the infinite banking and I want to ask, how do you use that strategy? So infinite banking is when you use life insurance, typically whole life insurance, but there's other kinds and you generate a lot of cash in these policies and then you use that cash. So can you talk a little bit about how you use your life insurance, infinite banking, and, and what it does to your investments? The strategy that we utilize, we call the investment optimizer strategy. And if you read my book, chapter three, I talk about, you need an opportunity fund. What are you doing with your cash in between deals? What sucks is if you've had money sitting in the bank the last year, you have what I would call liquidity drag. You have this drag on your capital because inflation, which they're saying 9.1%, I don't think that's accurate. I think it's probably double digits is more accurate. If your cash is being eaten away at 5, 10, 15% a year, that's a big drag on your portfolio. So we started our policies right before my first son was born. So we've been doing this for 13 years. We flow pretty much all of our investment income through our policies. And real quick, you build cash value in a specifically structured life insurance policy, and then you move capital from the policy into an investment, and then you cycle it back through the strategy. What's nice is you never have, like the way we do it, you never have money just sitting in the bank. It's earning money inside the policies, which is typically four or five, sometimes higher percent annualized. Again, you're asking somebody whose father died at five, Jim, People are like, well, Chris, I can get a better return somewhere else. This is not an investment. This is a strategy. If you said to my best friend whose wife died after three years of having his policies, what was your return on that policy? He wouldn't take too kindly to that. He bought it to protect his family in case something happened to his wife. And unfortunately, something did. If you need insurance, then this is a strategy worth looking into, in my opinion. Since we're running out of time on our website, there's a banking link and we have a little white paper and a little video as well with one of our recent podcasts. And we talk specifically about how we've set up our strategies. And you can always email me at chris at nextlevelincome.com. I can tell you kind of how we did it because definitely there's efficient ways to do it, but you can add like one to 2% to your returns of your portfolio versus just having this money in cash over 10 or 20 years. And that can be very significant. The thing that you nailed it, it is not an investment, it's a strategy. You know, I used to be a financial advisor, so I sold life insurance. And part of it was, well, 4.5% return, that's not very good. It's fine, right? And it's tax-free. But this is not an investment, it's a strategy. It's a turbo booster for your other stuff. It's a can cycle money through. There's so many other uses. So I think that was really well said. So I appreciate that. The last two questions I always ask, first one is, what's a great podcast you listen to? 
You Can't Use Your Own, which is the next level income show. We're going to put that in the show notes anyway, so we're not going to count that. What's another great podcast you like to listen to? So I'm going to go a little different direction here. I kind of alluded to this earlier, but there's one thing I'm more passionate about than money, and that's health. And Andrew Huberman has his podcast is called, uh, I think it's Huberman Lab, the Huberman Lab or something like that, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N. Fantastic. If you want to sleep better, if you want to learn how to have more energy, I mean, look, money can help you do a lot more things. But if you want to live longer, if you want to live better, that's a great podcast. I love him. He got me into taking cold showers and uh, it took a while to get comfortable with that. But I got my cold plunge coming on Monday, Jim. If you're ever in town, dude, come on in. 40 degrees, jump in. It's hard. It's difficult, but it does something. Another podcast guest, I don't remember who recommended him, and I listened to like 10 hours straight of his stuff. It's interesting for sure. The last question, you mentioned it already, but let's do it again. How can listeners get in touch with you if they want to connect with you? We got a ton of information on the website, nextlevelincome.com. We got a free book there for you. We have our podcast. We have our blog. We have the uh, information on banking. If there's anything I mentioned today and you want to reach out directly to me, it's just Chris at nextlevelincome.com. And of course, you know, I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook and all that. Yeah, feel free to reach out and hopefully I provide some information that can help you on your journey if you're listening today towards financial independence. This was fantastic. It was great talking to you. I appreciate you being on the show. We'll definitely continue chatting. Yeah, look forward to it, Jim. And we'll have you on our show here coming up soon. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. Hey, Left Fielders, it's Matt Piccini, your backstage guide to passive investing. I love sharing what I've learned about passive investing, which frees you up to do the things you really care about every day. If you'd like to improve life for yourself, your family, and leave your corner of the world a little better than you found it through win-win investment opportunities, then let's connect. I can help you transform your life and bring your priorities out from behind the curtains. Set up a meeting with me at Pacheni.com. That's P-I-C-H-E-N-Y.com. That was fun, spending that time with Chris. You know, it really strikes me when someone who was in college decided to read 250 books, go to seminars and conferences because he wanted to figure out how to build financial wealth. I know that when I was in college, I was avoiding books as much as possible because I had enough to do just as a college student and all the scholastic and fun things I wanted to do. That was impressive to me. Some of the things he said really stuck with me. You need capital. Obviously, you need capital. But he looked at it as two types of capital, time or money. And there's different stages of your life when you have one or the other. And that really will influence your investment decisions. If you have time but no money, you're going to do different things than if you have money but no time. And we are the money but no time crowd because we're doing these passive syndications and you can't do them without money, but you can do them with limited times. That made a lot of sense to me. And then his mindset, he sadly lost a friend of young and he decided then he wanted to experience a life with no regrets. And that's phenomenal. That's a great way to look at things. So he's out there doing things. He wants to have no regrets. He wants to do everything. But he also realized to live a life with no regrets, it's a lot easier to do if you have money. You need money to live that way. That's why, again, he read the 250 books and he's getting into real estate and he's doing the things that will make him money so he can live a life with no regrets. And it isn't the standard way of doing things. It's not the stock market, the 401k, a W-2 all of that. There's nothing wrong with all of that. But, you know, he wants to do more. He wants to have more opportunities and live life with no regrets. And it's easier to do that when you have financial freedom. 
And I like that he said his favorite question is why. And this is probably a bad analogy, but it reminds me of a three-year-old who's constantly asking why. He does it obviously in a more effective way, but what that does is it allows you to ask all of the questions. When an operator, you're screening an operator and they say something, you just say, why? Why are you in this market? Why are you in this asset class? And it's brilliant because it's an open-ended question that they have to answer. So, you know, on our sponsor screener that we share with the infield, maybe one of the questions should just be, why? For everything they say, because I think you, you generate a great conversation that way. So that was super interesting. And then we ended with life insurance. And the thing he said that really struck me from, again, from my days of being a financial advisor and, and selling the life insurance, it's not an investment, it's a strategy. And I tried to explain to clients, look, it's not an investment, it's a turbocharge you know, it'll help your other investments, but to call it a strategy, I think is really accurate and smart. And it's an opportunity fund, right? It combats for him liquidity drag. So you're not putting your extra money in a bank earning 0.2% or whatever it is now. Maybe it's gone up a little bit, but you're earning 4.5% or 5%. If you look at it as not an investment, it's a strategy and it's a turbocharge for your current investments. I think that's a great way to look at it. And then we ended offline talking a bit more about the car washes, and I really like the, the way he talks about it. There's a big market that no one owns more than 3% of the entire market, which is very rare for any business. So there's a lot of opportunity, and the next five to 10 years might be huge for car washes. So that's something that I'm gonna look out for. I, I'm really happy that I met Chris and that we're uh, beginning this relationship, and we'll, we'll see where it goes from here. That's all for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.